Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate newsletter audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number two. That happens to correspond with the week of December 26, 2022. And in this issue, we're going to talk about infant feeding, calcium, and loneliness. The song of the week is The Light of Christmas Day by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. The corresponding podcast for this period is the Nancy O'Hara Pans, Cans, and Pandas conversation regarding autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndromes and basal ganglia encephalitis. So tune into it. It's a fascinating conversation about a very difficult to treat disorder that is becoming more and more prevalent in children. Okay, let's get started. Issue number two, food in infants. What do we know? Quote, Humans are the only mammals who feed our young special complementary foods before weaning, and we are the only primates that wean our young before they can forage independently. There appears to be a sensitive period in the first several months of life when infants readily accept a wide variety of tastes, and this period overlaps with a critical window for oral tolerance. As a result, infants should be exposed to a wide variety of flavors while mother is pregnant, while mother is nursing, and beginning at an early age. There also appears to be a sensitive period between four and nine months when infants are most receptive to different food textures. There remains debate about when it is best to begin introducing solid foods into an infant's diet. However, the available evidence suggests that providing the water and food supply are free of contamination and the infant is provided adequate nutrition there are no clear contraindications to feeding infants complementary foods at any age. There is emerging evidence that introduction of solid foods into an infant's diet by four months may increase their willingness to eat a variety of fruits and vegetables later in life, decrease their risk of having feeding problems later in life, and decrease their risk of developing food allergies. And the early introduction of solid foods into an infant's diet does not appear to increase their risk of obesity later in life. End quote. That was written by Stephen Borowitz pediatric gastroenterologist at the University of Virginia in 2021. So let's talk about food introductions. How should we do it? When infants begin to transition to eating solid foods, there are differing theories on how to progress through this process. I tend to always think anthropologically here. What would humans have done for hundreds of years before the advent of jarred baby food, processed puffs, or other processed foodstuffs that we feed our children instead of whole food that's produced at home. Food is meant to be provided to a child by his mother and father in a whole food form initially that was broken down by the parent mechanically by chewing, cooking, or crushing. First foods allowed for many human benefits. Mothers could wean off breast milk earlier, allowing for more procreation, which was a major species benefit. The massive energy needs of the brain, roughly 30% of ingested calories, could be supplemented to allow mom a break from giving up so much energy every day to help her get out and procure food more easily. These realities led to survival advantages for mom and babe, leading me to believe that they were baked into our DNA. How does this historical reality translate to today? Children will always prefer sweet to bitter i.e. fruits to vegetables. Children also tend to cluster food preferences to that which the mother was exposed to during pregnancy. 
This is a problem in modern society as we have far too many foods that hijack this taste preference reality and lead to poor choices for mom and child over time. Sweet foods also were evolutionarily safe and energy rich. Bitter could be a poison and often not energy dense. This is not surprising that children left to their own devices will consume energy rich processed and sweet foods. Podcast number 34 with Dr. Stefan Guianet goes into a lot of the discussion around food desires anthropologically, historically, and how they're being hijacked by modern society. Give it a listen. It really gets detailed into this reality. Quote, there appears to be a sensitive period during the first several months of life when infants are most receptive to a wide variety, diversity of flavors, and what they taste during this sensitive period can influence their taste preferences later in life. Most infants, less than four months of age, readily drink formulas that contain hydrolyzed casein, which are extremely bitter. However, beyond six months, infants who have never been exposed to these formulas refuse to drink them. Moreover, infants fed hydrolysate formulas in the first several months of life are willing to eat savory, sour, or bitter foods more often than infants fed standard milk-based formula, and as compared to children who were never fed a hydrolysate formula, five-year-old children who were fed a hydrolysate formula during infancy were more readily capable of eating foods with a sour and bitter taste aromas, end quote. Repeating the exposure to a food also has a major influence on acceptance over time. Quote, in one study, mothers of seven-month-old infants were asked to identify a vegetable their child or infant disliked and were instructed to offer that vegetable on alternate days for 16 days. To offer a well-liked vegetable, typically something like sweet carrots or sweet potatoes or squash, on the other days. On the first day, infants ate substantially less of the disliked vegetable than the well-liked vegetable. However, by the eighth repetition, the intake of the liked and unliked vegetables were identical, end quote. These two quotes were from Dr. Borowitz's article again. So other studies noted that children offered diverse foods in the first year of life tolerate a wider palate of foods in their later age ranges. Aside from taste, is there a really... A sensitive period of time whereby the the type of solid introduced has a downstream effect on texture choice later on. The answer appears to be yes here. Babies, infants, and toddlers tend to prefer smooth food textures over lumpy or chunky, but this reality, if unchallenged, can cause downstream issues. According to Dr. Borowitz, most fruits and vegetables have complex textures which require the infant to use their tongues to move the food around their mouths in preparation to swallow. The infant's ability to use their tongues to manipulate food in their mouth appears to be more dependent upon their experiences with textured food than on any particular developmental stage. Research shows that they are more willing to eat and enjoy chopped or chunky foods by one year of age, are more likely to eat a variety of fruits and vegetables at seven years, and are less likely to suffer from feeding problems during childhood if they are offered different textures, often while being beginning to eat solids in any form. On the other hand, children who are not introduced to varying textured solids until after a year or more likely are more likely to develop oral defensiveness and refuse more highly textured foods like with it, which is a constant problem in our clinic these days. We are seeing this issue over and over and over again. So knowing all of this, what are our ideas for feeding? Babies should be able to open their mouths when they see food coming and move it 
in and around with their tongue. They should move their head to the side when they don't want any food anymore. They should be able to sit upright in a chair or self-sustained position to feed safely. Use whole and real foods in all varieties in a safe texture that is not a choking hazard. Avoid starting with sweet foods that will make bitter foods like vegetables harder to accept. Start between four and six months of age. Researcher Lisa Daniels and her colleagues advise patients with the following guidelines from 2015. Always test the foods yourself before you give them to your baby. Make sure foods are soft enough, quote, to mash with a tongue on the roof of the mouth, or are large enough that small pieces don't break off when sucked or chewed, example, strips of meat. Don't offer foods that form a crumb in the mouth. Make sure your baby is always sitting upright during the meal, not leaning back. Don't leave your baby unattended. An adult should monitor the baby at all times during the meal. Don't try to put finger foods in your baby's mouth. Never put whole foods into the infant's mouth. The infant must do this at their own pace and under their own control. That's from Dewar, D-E-W-A-R-G, 2019. Do not use fat-free, sugar-free, anything free in the beginning. Use real food in real non-chokeable forms. Avoid adding salt or sugar to any foods. Do not start with starchy rice cereal. Instead, try steel-cut oatmeal. No raw meats, fish, or honey because of pathogenic disease risk post-consumption. As always, the links are in the newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com. Section 2. Calcium. A mineral involved in many reactions in the body. It is found primarily in our bones and teeth as a storage site. The body carefully regulates calcium levels by stealing from the bones when the system needs more. It is critical for the function of blood vessels, muscles, neurologic intracellular signal transduction or mission. It is also critical for hormone secretion. This covers every aspect of feeling good and moving with fluidity. Based on age, we need roughly 1,000 milligrams daily of calcium. This should be derived primarily through food. If you need to supplement, current evidence suggests that supplementing above 500 milligrams for a 70 kilogram human is not a good idea. Calcium supplements require acid to absorb and therefore should be taken with food. Phytic and oxalic acids decrease absorption of all minerals, including calcium. Foods loaded with phytic acid, like unsoaked beans, will reduce the absorption of calcium in food and supplements. Food sources of calcium are primarily dairy, fish with bones, salmon, sardines, smelt, anchovies, organic soy or tofu, and leafy greens. Vitamin D is necessary for the gut absorption of calcium and phosphorus. Diets high in sodium and caffeine, the typical American diet, will decrease calcium absorption. Deficiency states occur with disease, kidney disease, vitamin D deficiency, GI absorption diseases, and certain medications, including diuretics and acids and steroids. All of these can lead to a deficiency state. Symptoms of deficiency include muscle twitching and cramps, numbness in your extremities, eventually abnormal heartbeats, seizures, and death. You'll see people when they get their blood pressure taken, their fingers will curl up and get into like a little flexed position. My real concern about calcium is rooted insufficiency states, not deficiency. The long-term consequences are bad. Osteoporosis or bone weakness is the major side effect of chronic insufficiency, which in turn leads to excessive fractures, which is one of the leading causes of mortality with age. I do not recommend supplements unless advised by a provider. Work hard to get your calcium adequately through your diet, roughly 1,000 milligrams daily for adults. Make sure that you are getting adequate sun exposure daily. 
Daily exercise is also critical for laying down new bone, osteogenesis we call it. If you do need a supplement, take calcium citrate, 200 milligrams twice daily for an adult and less for children based on provider's recommendations. Most of your bone is laid down before the third decade of life is completed. This is important to pay attention to for parents and children alike. Get their adequate calcium through food and make sure they are exercising to help lay down bone through the mechanical stimulation of the bone by movement, pounding of the ground when running, exercising. Take on point. Make sure that your kids are active, eating a balanced calcium-rich diet and getting 20 minutes of daily sun exposure. Part 3. Loneliness. Tough topic. Humans, like many animal species, like to live or interact in groups. The species in general has historically benefited from collective grouping behaviors. Safety in numbers and shared food collection has allowed humans to live and thrive. Human groupings are like social concentric circles, with country at the large end and family unit at the small end. It is at the extended family-sized ring that people really benefit from psychologically through intimate love, education of values, and elder wisdom and perceived safety. Over the past half century, grouping behaviors have changed dramatically for many Americans. We are collectively more siloed in our activity and beliefs. We have no collective wars to fight or famine to ward off. The greatest generation grew up out of the ashes of World War II and learned that being in a group had major advantages. They also knew how to compromise. Crisis has a perverted way of uniting disparate groups for the common good. Fast forward to 2022. The majority of Americans have very little to truly worry about except what we introspectively dream up as our issue of the day. Maslow's hierarchy of needs are met for most. Many have turned to isolation because they either can, have to, or prefer to in modern society, especially post-COVID pandemic. Jobs take us farther from extended family. Schools are farther from one's home. Children in the neighborhood may go to five different schools, making the play experience weak. What are the negative consequences of this behavior? Are people more lonely? Most people will tell you that times are different. Are they worse? Are we truly lonely? In an excellent article in Scientific American from January of 2018, author Francine Russo discussed the toxicity of loneliness. What is loneliness? It is defined in many ways, but to me, it is as emotional sadness based on a real or perceived social isolation or the experience of being separated from others for a defined period of time. Loneliness can be a product of a choice and even thrust upon us. Either way, the effect can be negative. What does the research say about loneliness? Is our response to it evolutionary? Being excluded from a social group causes one to feel less safe from threats by others, according to researcher Don Cacciopo, C-A-C-I-O-P-P-O. He goes on to note that the pain of loneliness motivates a human to reconnect with others. He calls this RAM, reaffiliation motive. During this time, humans and animals will become hypervigilant to social threats and undergo neural changes that increase physical stress. These changes are believed to be survival mechanisms. This is evolutionary. Statistically, the highest risk group for loneliness is that group that is less than 25 years old. The biggest predictors of loneliness are a lack of social engagement, number of friends, and the frequency of these contacts. There are two schools of thought on why some children end up lonely. The first is obvious. They lack the natural skills or training to interact socially. The medical diagnosis of social communication disorder seen often in children with Asperger's syndrome fits this mold. 
The second group is the group that I call the Eeyores of the world. They have a persistently negative self-view. They perceive that their interactions with others are poor quality, despite the reality from the other's view of the relationship or interaction. For both groups, the cycle of negativity in relationships and interactions can go indefinitely, causing the person to develop depression, disease, and unfortunately on the occasional suicide attempt. Humans that struggle to find inclusion may try to avoid these loneliness events by joining any group that will accept them. Witness the worlds of gangs, tribalism, cults, or terrorism ideology for clear examples. Sebastian Younger is famed writer and filmmaker who is known best for his work chronicling war in the documentary Restrepo. He shows the reality of war and the group mentality that pervades it on both sides. Watching this movie and living through junior high and high school is clear in wartime and during adolescence that men and women and boys thrive in pack mentality and will seek it out. If you are in the pack, then you are good. Being outside can be a mess for one's psyche. Ditto for young girls. This is lonely. Modern families are increasingly challenging with the large numbers of single parents or two working parents making parenting difficult and time-honored mealtimes a rare event. Extended families are even more likely to be separated by hours of driving time blocking the passing of the natural wisdom and warmth that the older generations give to the young. The time families spend involved together has significantly eroded over the last 50 years. These changes can increase a child's risk of loneliness and increase the potential desire to find inclusion anywhere. They will become physically and mentally stressed. Often, they will show signs of depression with isolation at home, increased sleeping behaviors, lack of desire to be involved in things that previously brought happiness. They may start to show increasing anger and hostility. This is the point at which we need to be present and aware in order to intervene when a soul is wavering toward the dark side. Adolescence is a trying time. They need us daily, even though they seem to despise our ideas and overtures. We need to be aware that the family structure that provides support for many children has changed. Work often interferes with parenting. Recognizing these changes as they exist in each child's world is a first step in identifying a potential lonely child in need. Changing the family, work, local social structure may be impossible. However, being aware of these differences can lead us to find ways to mitigate the child's lonely feelings. Red flag warnings. If you note that your child struggles with making friends, it is not getting invited to any parties, is getting in trouble, or seems disconnected with the school, check in with them patiently. You will likely meet resistance to your first inquiry. The truth is painful for them. Be a listener and let them own their reality. Ask them, how can I help? They likely just need your time, but will not ask for it. Giving every time is probably the greatest tool in your toolkit. Spend it as often as you can. After that, psychological love base is reestablished. Then proceed with other interventions. Consider joining different groups that will offer a source of friendship that aligns with your child. The easy one is a sports team. But equally beneficial can be a faith-based team group like Young Life or vocation, a vocational approach where giving is a priority. Increase the frequency of family hikes and outings. Consider adding peers to come along to challenge and encourage your child to make friendships. In a book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People, he lays out some of the interesting, albeit simplistic, ways to attract friends. The basic principles are what is lost in those that cannot perceive emotion or social cues well. Teaching your kids simple truths about friendship can be powerful. I think of the character Alan Turing, 
played in, by Benedict Cumberbatch in the movie The Imitation Game. He lacked all the basic tools for friendship and seemed not to care. Over time, that reality proved false. He would have certainly benefited from some emotional quotient education. Helping children at very young ages can change a life for the better as they acquire basic tools for friendship development. 1. Smiling often and calling people by their first name are simple and valuable tools for being a friend. 2. Avoid the argument that is unnecessary. It is a rare day that you prove someone wrong and they enjoy the experience. Teach your children wisely when it is okay to argue a truth and when it would be better to let it go. This is especially true when it is an opinion of truth as in the case of politics or religion. Facts that are known are a place to set the record straight if it is necessary. If it is in a work environment, then showing the truth if it is provable in a way that is not aggressive and cocky is recommended. 3. Teach to them and teach them to listen often. Most people enjoy being listened to. It is not necessary to understand why they feel as they do as much as they feel heard. It is not your job to make anyone feel better or fix their problem. Frankly, that is often counterproductive as the obstacle that they are facing is the way to happiness through self-success. Trial, error, failure. Trial, error, failure. Trial and success. A great way to go about it. Listen, guide, and do not do it for them. Four, try not to criticize. Teaching someone in a loving way is far different in its reception than criticism. The value in your critique is low versus the negative backlash that comes with it. Five, appreciate the little things where you can. Everyone has a quality that can be admired. Find it in the person and let them know. I find this to be extremely powerful in life. If someone is lonely and feeling underappreciated, the simple act is beyond powerful. Six, learn about what someone likes and desires. Identifying with someone's wants and desires is a great way to start a friendship and relationship. Seven, admit when you're wrong, period. Hopefully, teaching techniques of behavior related to friendship, joining peer groups, and having more family time will begin the process of avoiding loneliness. However, when the lonely world is not disappearing for them, get involved with a psychologist or therapist that can help offer tools and management help. Since we know that lonely children go on to become lonely adults, let's stop the cycle before it begins. Loving and teaching. The newsletter has the articles from Scientific American, Smart Speech Therapy Resource, a Harvard article, and a caregiver educational article. You can get all the links in the newsletter. Okay, I think that wraps up issue number two in volume 13. Again, as always, hug those kids. Happy New Year and many blessings to all when this came out. The information provided in this newsletter, AudioCast, is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.